Good to be here tonight as we continue in the study of the prayers of the Bible. Looking back, it was in January of 2021 that some 14 of the men gathered for pizza after the Sunday morning service. And we talked through the upcoming Wednesday night sermon series on prayer. And from that meeting, we put together a list of 30 plus prayers of the Bible. According to my calculation, this is the 17th sermon of that series that has been going on for the past couple of years now. So let's, let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and we commit and dedicate this time to you, that you would teach us from your, your word, and that you would help us to understand and grasp these prayers and what you would have us learn from them. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. The story is told, and I'm going to repeat it again tonight, and I'm pulling from a couple of different sources as I, as I tell this story. But in 1803, the young nation of the United States of America made this massive land purchase on its western border known as the Louisiana Purchase, which, which approximately doubled the nation's geographical size. In one day, it doubled. And with that purchase complete, the natural next step was to send an expedition to explore this newly acquired landmass, and the Lewis and Clark expedition spent the next over two years on that expedition of discovery from traveling from the area of St. Louis, Missouri, to the Pacific Ocean, Pacific North, Northwest, and then back again. It was an incredible story of adventure as they, as they made that, that trek. Today, we can easily look at a map and trace their journey. And what they were trying to do was start in St. Louis, travel up the Missouri River, cross over to, the, to another river, the Columbia River, and, tra and, and travel on that over to the Pacific Ocean. Looks pretty simple. Sounds pretty simple. But when you look at the map, which we can easily see today that they did not have access to at the time, you can see this range of mountains, the Rocky Mountains, which proved to be a formidable obstacle in between these two rivers. And perhaps it was under, uh, underestimated initially by Lewis and Clark. Within the Rocky Mountains and stretching across parts of the states of Idaho and Montana is the Bitterroot Range that encompasses an area of almost 25,000 square miles. And within this range are the Bitterroot Mountains, which made for a difficult geographical challenge for the Lewis and Clark expedition. In the words of Lewis, we suffered everything cold, hunger, and fatigue could impart, as well as the keenest anxiety excited for the fate of our expedition in which our whole souls were embarked, end quote. And as they traveled, they ended up splitting up into two different groups as they tried to traverse these, these mountains. Whereas food was plentiful initially in their, in their expedition, once they made it to these mountains, there was a different story. According to Clark, and this is when they got back together, 
after they were separated. According to Clark, he wrote, I found Captain Lewis in the party encamped, much fatigued and hungry, much rejoiced to find something to eat, of which they appeared to partake plentifully. Clark's experience was that too many roots, and what he was saying there is that these bitter root mountains were named for the bitter roots that were there, which were a small herb plant of which the roots could be peeled and cooked and then eaten. So Clark's experience was that too many of these roots had made his hunters violently ill. So Lewis cautioned them of the consequences of eating too much. The Indian tribes of that area did partake in limited quantities of these roots, but as you can imagine from the name, the roots were not necessarily tasty. However, after severe hunger on the part of Lewis and Clark and their, their men, these roots were better than going without. And the biographer writes that Clark's warning about overeating was easier given than followed. Lewis and his men gorged, gorged themselves and got sick. Lewis especially so. Most of the party were violently ill for a week. Their dynasty produced an acute diarrhea and vomiting. In short, and I continue on this quote, for over a week, the expedition resembled a hospital ward for the critically ill, more than it did a platoon of fighting men. And herein lies one of the great stories of American history. Even though it's a tale of what didn't happen rather than what did, it would have been the work of a few moments only for the Indians there to kill the white men and take for themselves all the expedition's goods. Had the Indians done so, they would have come into possession of by far the biggest arsenal, not just west of the Rocky Mountains, but west of the Mississippi River, along with priceless kettles, axes, axes, hatchets, beads, and other trade items in quantities greater than any of them would ever see in their lifetimes. End quote. This food that these men thought would help them ended up causing problems, and it could have easily led to fatal consequences for the entire expedition. And the terminology is not lost on us in other life situations. For the Bible also uses a similar illustration. In Hebrews 12, 15, which tells us, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. These life situations where the consequences may lead to bitterness as opposed to forgiveness. So tonight we will look at the examples of two men who were in very different and difficult circumstances and yet prayed very similar prayers. These are prayers that were not made by bitter men, but rather by forgiving men. The two men are Jesus and Stephen, and the prayers are found in Luke chapter 23, verses 34, and Acts 7, verse 60. I read first from Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And then reading from Acts chapter 7, verse 60. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The stories that led up to these prayers are very familiar to us. Jesus, he had suffered a mock trial and then was crucified by the Romans with the approval of the Jews. Stephen, he was accused of blasphemy by false witnesses and was taken before the Jewish council to give account of his actions. And by the end of his message and at the end of Acts 7, he was condemned to death by stoning and was killed. In both accounts, the verse of our focus tonight is, this, is a short prayer made by each man. The subject of the prayer is forgiveness, and the object of that forgiveness is toward those who are in the wrong. Those who count Jesus as their enemy, and those who counted Stephen as their enemy. In Luke, Jesus asked God to forgive his tormentors for their lack of knowledge of what they were doing. In Acts, Stephen asked Jesus to not hold the sin to the accounts of his executioners. So what is the unifying idea between both of these prayers? It is that God enables all believers to have a forgiving attitude and spirit toward those who sin against him. And we can ask ourselves, how can we prepare our hearts to forgive our enemies or those, maybe more appropriately, who consider us their enemies, whether past, present, or future? So now we turn our focus upon three distinctives, three points that I want to pull out from these verses on forgiving our enemies. Look at how each man addressed God in their prayers. Jesus addressed God as Father, while Stephen prayed to his Lord. So the first point I point out is that we recognize the character of God through our suffering. Recognize, acknowledge, accept, rely on, value the character of God through our suffering. God is a loving Heavenly Father even during times of suffering in our lives. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Notice the train of thought in this passage from Romans 8. If we are led by the Spirit of God, we are sons of God. That enables us to pray to God as our Abba Father, and we can do this with confidence because of the Spirit's witness with our spirit. And since we are his children, we are also heirs of God and with Christ. And the final dynamic that ties everything else together is that provided we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. There is this integral link between sonship and glorification. And there's a link that ties these things together, the concept 
of suffering. In fact, it's, it's not too exaggerated to say that suffering is part of the glue that helps bring together these pieces for the benefit of the children of God. Looking at, Jesus, uh, looking at Stephen's prayer now, he called Jesus Lord. Jesus is our sovereign God who controls all things during our times of suffering. Hebrews 1.3, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is exactly what Stephen experienced. In Acts 7, 55 and 56, we pick up this story a few verses earlier. We see that he, full of the Holy Spirit, as is speaking of Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. By default of showing the one part, the other part is illustrated. Through showing himself to Stephen, Jesus demonstrated that he does, uh, Jesus demonstrated that he does uphold the universe by the word of his power. How many conversations have I been involved in with people who cannot grasp this or refuse to grasp that there is more to life than what we can see? Socioeconomic factors that may include income, education, social status. These are often the only factors that are considered in defining the meaning and existence of life. But yet these factors will all ultimately fall short. As the philosopher said, give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything. It is unescapable that when the focus of your life is placed on the visible material things around you, you will be disappointed. If your confidence is not placed in material possessions and comfort, and we know that God is not required to bless his children with these earthly benefits, what about when believers do suffer, as in the case of Jesus and Stephen? And just as we acknowledge that our earthly confidence is not based on material factors, we also recognize that our suffering does not change the nature of God. Instead, our suffering in a way confirms the Abba Father aspect of our relationship with God, and it is required even that we pass through that suffering to reach our glorification. Paul wrote about in, in Romans 8, and he writes again in, in Philippians 1.29, when he wrote that for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Going through suffering is not only a part of being an heir with Christ, but indeed there is an aspect of it being a gift. The granted gift of suffering, as someone termed it. So what do we do with this paradox of 
desiring greater comfort in our own lives, while also recognizing that suffering is a gift that would bring us closer to glorification. And we recognize that difficulty even as we recognize that the more we meditate on God's character and works, the more our heart will be transformed. Like Jesus, we recognize the goodness of our Heavenly Father. Like Stephen, we recognize the sovereign hand of Jesus that upholds all things on earth. Like Paul, we recognize that suffering is a gift for the sake of Christ. And we rest in truth, these truths and others, as our hearts are transformed toward glorification. But it doesn't stop there. Even as we recognize the character of God in our suffering and through our suffering, we can ask the question about what is that contrast to God's character? The first point that I was making is that we should recognize the character of God through our suffering, but that does not negate the context of our suffering. In some cases, the suffering that a believer endures is the result of someone sinning directly against them. So the second point I would make is that we acknowledge and recognize the seriousness of sin. Recognize, acknowledge, realize the seriousness of sin. In his prayer, in his prayer Jesus prayed, what they do. What exactly are they doing? They are crucifying the Lord of glory. Nothing that happened to Jesus was deserved by him. Acts 2.36, God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Hebrews 4.15, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Indeed, the observers to the crucifixion of Jesus even recognized this, as was recorded in Matthew 27.54. It tells us, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Everything that Jesus encountered on the cross and the mock trial that he endured before being crucified was a sin against him. In his prayer, he did not deny the sin, and he did not minimize it. Consider Stephen. In his prayer, he said, This sin, even as he prayed for God's mercy upon his murderers, he did not deny the sin that they were committing. The life of Jesus is well known to us in his sinlessness, perhaps less so for Stephen. Even though Stephen may be one of those briefer, less common biblical characters, it was, said, it was written that nothing wrong was recorded. Or if we study what was in the scriptures, there was nothing wrong ever said about him. 
He enters the storyline in Acts 6-5 when the church chose seven men to serve the church. The criteria for these men were that they would be of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. And once again, Acts 6-5 is written that Stephen was indeed a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts 6-8 is recorded that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Acts 6-10, but they, the opponents of Stephen, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And in Acts 6-15, when Stephen was before the council, his face was like the face of an angel. This was quite a man. He had tremendous character and he was fearless in his testimony. Yet what do we read as to what happens when his opponents could not withstand him in Acts 6, 8, or 6 10? We continue the story in Acts 6, 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This is a completely made-up charge, a completely bogus accusation. It's not just a violation of the Eighth Commandment, but also falls under the jurisdiction of the law so that if false witnesses should be put to death for the false testimony of blasphemy against Stephen, which carries the death penalty. And Stephen called out these actions for what they were, sin. And as with Jesus, Stephen did not deny or minimize the actual sin that was being committed against him. The story is told of a man named Michio Fuchida. And Fuchida was born in Japan in 1902, and he may have been an unknown character today, except for his role as the commander who led the Japanese planes in attacking Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. It was that attack which made him famous in Japan. Six months later, he was wounded at the Battle of Midway, and he served out the rest of the war as a staff officer. And I pick up the story in the account of one narrator which had this to say after interviewing, interviewing Fuchida. After the war, he moved his wife and children to a farm owned by relatives and supported them by what he grew from the soil. It was a humbling come down for a national hero. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, war crimes trials had began. Some of those on trial had been accused of mistreating prisoners of war. The knowledge that fellow officers had brought such shame upon the nation was another crushing blow for Fuchida. Although he had no contact with the prison camps, he was often 
summoned from his farm as a character witness. He was walking dejectedly through the Tokyo train station on his way to the court one morning when someone, someone shoved a little leaflet into his hand with the title, I was a prisoner of war. Something to do with the trials, he supposed. He put into his pocket to read on the train going home. Sure enough, there was the account of an American soldier named Jacob de Sager, who had spent nearly three and a half years in a Japanese concentration camp. There all was the by, no, the by now hideously familiar story of kickings, beatings, starvation. And there was Jacob's very natural reaction, bitterness, hatred, helpless rage. Very much, Fuchida reflected on to the click of the train wheels like his own emotions since Hiroshima. Now would come the part where Jacob named his tortures and demanded revenge. But what was he reading? Jacob loved the Japanese, rejoiced in the midst of suffering. The transformation had come about, Jacob explained, through Jesus Christ. Fuchida recognized the name as one of the gods of the enemy. You could learn about Jesus, the leaflet went on, in a book called the Bible. The next morning he was called to testify. Fuchida went to a, I guess the next time he was called to testify, Fuchida went to a Tokyo bookstore and bought a Bible. And all alone in a little farmhouse he began to read. There was much he did not understand, but what he did understand as the weeks went on was that there were not many gods siding with this nation or that, but one God who loved all nations. This God had come to earth not as an emperor or as a military hero, but as a humble working man. The more he read, the more Fuchida felt the horror of his past devotion. Devotion to arms, to war, to hatred of one race or another. Then, Fuchida continued, I came to the death of this carpenter and read that he had prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Fuchida thought, why then? Jesus had prayed for me. That night in the farmhouse, Fuchida, who did not know a single person, a single Christian, asked God to forgive him, and he became a Christian himself. And without knowing it, following the pattern of believers, he began to tell others. Told them he found, found the answer to despair and defeat. Told them God had not come to lead armies, but to lead men and women out of hatred into love. Sin is very serious. We must never deny that truth. Sin leads ultimately to death and destruction. Even when we are seeking for forgiveness and praying for forgiveness, we do not deny the seriousness of sin. Recognizing that seriousness is what helped bring Fuchido to the Lord 
as he realized the contrast between darkness and light. The difference between his old life and new life in Christ. And even as we desire and we pray for the salvation of our enemies and for God's forgiveness in our lives, we do not ignore that the wages of sin is death. And with that truth, we can also rejoice in the other, another glorious truth, that there is freedom in Christ from sin. So with those two points, what's the third point? How should we proceed then? So in this third point that we look at now, first we recognize the character of God. Second, we acknowledge the seriousness of sin. And the third point I want to emphasize from these verses is that we can prepare our hearts for a continual attitude of forgiveness. Because of God's forgiveness in our lives, we can forgive others and desire God to also forgive them. In Jesus' prayer, he said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is recorded that Jesus had seven sayings while he was alive on the cross. None of the four Gospels record all seven of these sayings, but when you cross-check all four Gospels, you can read all seven sayings. The seven sayings of Christ on the cross. The seven last words from the cross. These sayings have been the topic of many good books and sermons over the years. And the first saying is the one recorded in our verse tonight from Luke. Father, forgive them. This word of forgiveness from the cross. As Jesus was nailed to the cross and condemned to die, he prayed for forgiveness upon his persecutors. A dictionary defines forgive as to pardon, to overlook offense, and treat the offender as not guilty, to forgive the offense, to send it away, to reject it. Jesus prayed that the sin of the crucifixion and the related offense may be rejected by God and forgiveness granted to the perpetrators. And God did answer this request in a great way as forgiveness did permeate Jerusalem in the days after the resurrection. Acts 2.41, 3,000 people believed. Acts 4.4, 5,000 men believed. Acts 5.14, multitudes both of men and women were added to the Lord. Acts 6.7, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Or think about Stephen's prayer. Do not hold this sin against them. We don't know all the results of Stephen's prayer, but we do know at least that this man, Saul, who was described in Acts 7.58 as the man upon which the witnesses laid their garments at his feet, 
that this man saw was ultimately converted and became a great evangelist for Christ in the person of the Apostle Paul. Paul says of himself in Acts 22.3 that I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. We can cross-check that against Acts 6, 9 and 10 that some of the synagogue of Cilicia were in the group that could not withstand the wisdom of Stephen. The lives of Stephen and Saul may have been overlapped for a period of time. And Stephen's death stuck in Paul's memory since he mentioned it in his testimony in Acts 22.20, which tells us, and and this is... This is Paul speaking. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. One more story from history. And this is a well-known story, but I I think it's worth repeating tonight. A story from Corrie ten Boom on forgiveness. And if you're not familiar with the story of Corey Tim Boom, she recounts some of the background history in the story. But she and her sister Betsy were put into a Nazi concentration camp during World War II for the crime of hiding Jews. She survived the camp and the war, but her sister did not. And I pick up the story as, as Corey tells it or writes it. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overlight headlights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in her home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard in Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hands thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrock in your message you were saying, I was guarded there, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that, 
the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus helped me, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing began to happen and took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into a joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Consider this verse from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does this verse apply to me? Yes. Does this verse apply to you and to others? Yes. But what if the sins are against me? Does this verse still apply? Yes. If someone sins against me and then confesses their sins to God, according to this verse, God will cleanse that person of all unrighteousness. And that includes the unrighteousness done against me or against you. And there are two sides to this coin that we seek to understand. The first side is that God is calling us to forgive our debtors. Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 6, 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If the forgiveness of God in our lives does not move us to forgive others, we may not have a true understanding of the forgiveness of sin in our lives. But then the other side to this coin that we seek to understand is that God is the one who forgives sins. And this is the foundation of all true forgiveness. Jesus and Stephen did not forgive the persecutors of their sins, but rather called upon God to forgive their sins. Now we know from a multitude of verses 
that Jesus does have the power to forgive sins because he is God. But he chose to pray to his father for the hearts of his persecutors to be changed. And every believer was once in that group of unrighteous people. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If we are in Christ, God forgave us. I want to read a story from Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 26. A story from the life of Jesus when he was here on earth. Luke five eighteen, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tires into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Notice in Luke 5, the paralytic's sins were forgiven through his faith in Jesus. The forgiveness of God is not given arbitrarily, but is given to those who believe in Jesus through faith and repentance. The justice of God in punishing sin is satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ. Go back for a moment. Think back to the story of the bitter roots and bitterness. Visualize for a moment moment, what it would have been like for their starving men in the Lewis and Clark expedition to eat those bitter roots. They gorged themselves on the roots to satisfy their hunger. But the food that they thought would satisfy them resulted in pain for sickness and almost fatal consequences. Is that not often the way in forgiveness? 
How often do we let the roots of bitterness spring up in our lives and threaten us with consequences that we did not intend? We not, we not just can, but Christians are commanded to extend forgiveness to those around them, even if they are our enemies or we are their enemies. And because of this ability and command, we can walk in the Spirit and cultivate a continual attitude of forgiveness. God has not abandoned us in our suffering. Indeed, suffering is an integral part of a Christian's life. Sin is never overlooked or marginalized with God. Either the offender will be punished by God for their sin, or Jesus has paid the penalty of that sin through his sacrifice on the cross. And a forgiving heart comes from a surrendered heart toward God. For forgiveness springs from the heart. And if that's not your heart right now, seek for it, pray for it, ask for it from God. Consider the ending of these stories. For the story of Jesus on the cross in, in Luke twenty three forty six. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And Jesus, to re, uh, Stephen, to read Acts 7, verse 60 again. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. For both of these men, they had a loud voice, a strong voice, big voice, great voice. These men had victory over their circumstances. They were victorious and faithful even to their death. And a final concluding point I would make is that having a forgiven spirit starts now. You may not have any mortal enemies trying to kill you now, but there will certainly be opportunities in the future, if not now, even now, to extend forgiveness to others. And we can prepare our hearts for forgiveness. And we can be ready to forgive when the opportunity arises. So that through Christ, we will have forgiveness instead of bitterness. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for these passages. But more importantly, thank you for revealing yourself through us, through Christ. That in the person of Christ, we have relationship with you, that we can be forgiven of our sins, that many of us are forgiven. Lord, that you have given us new life. Father, help us to walk in your spirit each day, that we will walk in a way that would, would glorify you. Father, forgive me when I do not have this attitude of forgiveness. And I pray that not just for myself, but for each person here, that your blessing might be upon us, that you would help us, that you would enable us, so that we might seek after Christ in all things. 
in his name, amen.